Father, the scriptures tell us that those who know thy name will put their trust in thee. You are a God who can be trusted. And because you can be trusted and we have seen you keep your word and we have seen you fulfill your promises, even in the midst of the storms, even in the midst of the hard stretches of trail, we can move ahead even when we're not sure of how things are going to shake out or how they're going to be resolved. We can keep moving ahead, trusting you and experiencing peace. Isaiah 26, he whose mind is stayed on thee, thou will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. We have learned that you are trustworthy. Now, we've been taught that ever since we've, some of us been little kids in Sunday school, but when we get into the hard places of life, we wonder about that. Can you really be trusted? And you keep putting us in situations where we are forced to trust you. It's not always that way, but it's often that way. And for those of us who have an acute sense right now of uncertainty or of fear or anxiety, help us to stabilize ourselves on who you are and what you have promised and what you have already done for us. That will increase our trust. The hymn says, stayed, stayed upon Jehovah. That's where we want to be tonight. Just stayed, just firmly planted on your character and who you are. What a good God you are. What a faithful God. What a merciful God. You're aware of every man here, every need, every pressure, every uh, fear. You're aware of those who are fighting hopelessness. You are aware of those who are fighting despair. So by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we open your word, minister to each one with the timely word of truth and encouragement. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are working through our study on the Ten Commandments. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the Fourth Commandment. We'll be in Exodus chapter 20. And I want to begin tonight with two questions. I, I realized a while back, I, uh, you know, I've been doing men's conferences 
full-time since about 1991 or 92. And um, it must have been a year or so ago. I, I, actually, I actually went back and looked at those schedules and realized that it's amazing. I had done, on the conservative side, 500 men's conferences, probably closer to six, even a little bit more men's conferences since, you know, the early 90s. When we do uh, a men's conference uh, around the country, you know, we, we've got a format. We, we run it Friday night, do two sessions, then we... Uh, come back Saturday morning and we go till noon. Usually after that first session and then we take a long break and as we come back in, I'll open it up for some questions for about 20 minutes just to give it, you know, guys have been sitting, they've been getting a lot of information, they've been pondering stuff, talking to other guys at the breaks and we'll open it up for questions. I can usually count uh, on three or four or five questions that will be consistently raised. Uh, it, it, I, I've never really gone back and reviewed it, but there are certain ones that come up because they're pressing on us. They're on our minds, they're on our hearts, we're kicking it around. The first question, and this this relates to this commandment we're going to look like we're going to look at tonight. Uh, the, that first question would be, and I hear it often: How do I find a balance between work and family? That's a big question. And then I immediately ask if someone else has a question. <laughs> a little humor there, guys. That's a great question. You know the thing, how do I find a balance between work and family? The way you find balance is by losing balance. That's how you learn to ride a bike. I remember when my dad took those training wheels off uh, in that back alley for the first time and I was a little bit nervous because those two training wheels on that back tire were security for me. And he's gonna run alongside me with his hand on the back of that seat. And he told me at a certain point, I'm gonna take my hand off and you, know, you won't know when. And that, that made me a little bit anxious. But I'm excited because, you know, I'm 19 years old, I'm finally gonna learn how to do this. And at a certain point, he took his hand off and then, then I started to go like, I started to lose balance. And then what do you do when you, then you come back and then you would lose balance and you find balance by losing balance. We're never in perfect balance. We're always struggling to find balance, but we lean too far this way or we lean too far that way. We learn, lean too far on work or we lean too far on this or you get what I'm saying. Now the fourth commandment helps us to answer that first question in Exodus chapter 20. The first three commandments have to do with the Lord God, but now 
in the revelation given to Moses, which he brought down on the ten, on the on the two tablets, the fourth commandment is in Exodus twenty verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female slave or your cat. By the way, slavery in the Old Testament was different than what the slavery we had in the South. It was radically different. Don't have time to get into that, but just know that, okay? You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female slave or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and is all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That commandment helps us to answer that first question that we often ask, how do I find a balance between my work and my family? There is another question. Here's the second question that we're going to deal with tonight. The second question that comes up is this. Is the Sabbath binding for Christians today? And that's a great question. It's in the Ten Commandments. I have made the statement over the last several weeks about the Ten Commandments that they contain the moral law of God. Of God. We, we pointed out that there are three aspects to the law, and I'll just review it real quickly. Uh, here in Exodus 20, the law was given to Moses. The Ten Commandments were given to Moses on the mount. But other laws were given to Moses. You can find them... Uh, in other sections of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, over 600 different laws. You can break that up into three parts. There's the moral law. This is the moral law, the Ten Commandments. It's for all people, in all cultures, in all generations. People knew these commands before they were written because God put it on their hearts. Romans 2 tells us that. So you've got the moral law of God. The moral law of God is still in effect. Then you have the civil laws. The civil laws are the laws of the nation. And some have read those laws and said, oh, that needs to be the law of the United States. No. That was a law given to Israel for their nation, not for any other nation. So that's the civil law. Then you have the ceremonial law, which would be the sacrifices, the stipulations on how priests were to make uh, offerings and uh, those things to the Lord. Those aren't for us. Jesus fulfilled the law in, in every point. In, in Matthew 5, Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So he fulfilled the civil law. He fulfilled the ceremonial law. The thing about the law is we can't keep it. But the civil law and the ceremonial law are not on us. They were for Israel. The moral law applies to us and to all people. 
we can't keep um, these commandments because we're sinners. So, as we have said before, what the law does is it drives us to Jesus. Because when Jesus went to the cross and he died in our place, and this is the book of Hebrews, he who knew no sin became sin. It's, it's also Romans, it's the New Testament. That Jesus came, <laughs> every high priest who entered in to make a sacrifice entered with something in his hands, he entered with some kind of animal. Jesus was the first high priest to not have an animal. His hands were empty because he was the sacrifice. John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus gave his life. He not only died for our sins, but he fulfilled the law in every point and did it on our behalf. His righteousness has been transferred into our accounts. That's a little bit of a review on the law. Now, to be more specific, I made the statement that the moral law is for all people, all cultures, all times. With the exception of this commandment, the fourth one. You say, well, why didn't you say that before? Because if I had said it before, I was making a general statement before. Because before, when I was teaching this, if I had have said the Ten Commandments are carried over into the New Testament, oh, except for the Fourth Commandment, it would have, I would have had to stop, explain it, would have raised all kinds of questions, and I didn't want to get into that until we got to this place. To this place. Does that make sense? So, um, so I'm going to show that to you tonight. Because God has given us these commands to show us how to live. It's for our good. It is the, it's the adhesive that holds society and cultures and families together. It's what prevents anarchy and lawlessness and chaos. And God's concerned about every aspect of our lives. He's concerned about our work. And he's concerned about our, our leisure and about our family time. He's concerned about all this stuff. When it comes to the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh is the Sabbath to the Lord your God, of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. For in six days, verse 11, the Lord made the heavens and the earth to see all that is in them, rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. When we get to this commandment, and, and here's what I'm going to do, guys. I, I'm going to explain to you the two views on this among evangelical Christians, okay? I'm not going to take a lot of time on it, but there are two views among those who love God and love his word on how you take this command. Then, after doing that, we're going to get real practical, and we're going to get an application, and we're going to see how this works into my life and your life and the responsibilities and the demands and the fact that we're pulled a hundred different ways and that we're exhausted and that we're worn out because our lives are so full and our lives are so busy 
But I'm gonna ask Wayne Grudem to help us tonight because in his uh, tiny little devotional, <laughs> Christian Ethics, which I quoted before, um, where's four? There it is. Wayne summarizes the two views. Uh, the first view is basically, when it comes to the Sabbath, the first view is basically what we call the Sabbatarian position. Uh, it's a big word. You can impress your friends. Are you a Sabbatarian? Or, you know. or you can just say, uh, Sunday should be treated like the Sabbath day in the Old Testament. The Sabbath day in the Old Testament was what day of the week? Saturday. So in the Old Testament, they did the Sabbath. But when you get into the book of Acts, Jesus rose on the first day, on Sunday. And you can kind of track it, and I'm not going to go into this, but that's when Christians began to meet on the first day of the week. Those who hold what is called the Sabbatarian position, uh, Grudem says this, there's a long and highly respected tradition within the Christian church that sees Sunday as the New Testament counterpart to the Old Testament Sabbath day and therefore subject to many of its requirements. Uh, this was the position of the English Puritans and it's found, it's, it's found expression in the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you grew up Presbyterian, like my wife did, and you were taught the Westminster Catechism, the Shorter Catechism, which is a question and answer format that you can teach kids, she can still quote that thing. It's full of scripture. Um, and there are some good people that hold this view. I was, um, Mary was kind of raised in this. Sunday was the Sabbath. Uh, they didn't do much. They didn't go out and have social activity. It was just real. Um, it was a day of rest and a day of worship. Now, what's interesting is that her dad was a pastor. So he actually worked on the Sabbath. He worked on the Lord's day, which you're not supposed to do unless you're a pastor. This is where it gets real interesting. Or if you're an elder, or if you are involved in, in the church and helping with setup or with uh, parking, or if you have some kind of ministry, you're working. And a deal like this, you gotta have some people working on the Lord's day or it's not gonna happen, it's not gonna get done. Now, the home I was raised in, we went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, watch football, because we believe that to be restful and uh, God invented football in our minds. It was fun. It was, it was rest. It was right. We had a good time. You could forget about stuff. At least you used to watch football and forget about political stuff. And you just watch football. Okay? Now, those who argue for this position, their arguments are, number one, God established a pattern of sab Sabbath keeping at creation. We read Exodus 20, but Genesis 2 says that on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work 
that he had done in creation. Uh, God rested and he wasn't tired. God never gets tired. And the idea is he did that as a model for us. All right, in addition, when God gave the Sabbath commandment in Exodus 20, he gave his pattern of activities in creation as the reason. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, all that's in them, rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Therefore, it is argued resting on the seventh day is a moral requirement established by God at creation, a creation ordinance, and that means that God requires all people in all ages to obey it, not just those living under the covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, okay? A lot of godly people hold that position and there are writers like John Murray, uh, John Frame, that argue it well. Wayne Grudem himself in here talks about the fact that when he was in seminary, he held that position. But when he got out of seminary and started doing further study, he switched to the second view. The, the second view is that the Sabbath commandment is not morally binding on people today. Now, what are the reasons for this? I'm not going to give you all the reasons, but here, here are a few. Unlike the other nine commandments, this one is never reaffirmed for Christians in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. That's interesting. You, you've got all kinds of sins listed in the New Testament. You don't have breaking the Sabbath. Um, it's, it's not something that's reaffirmed in the New Testament. And there's a reason for that. Grudem writes, the Sabbath commandment looked forward to the coming of Christ and was fulfilled by his life and ministry. Now think about that. Because, you know, Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of what? Works. You see, there's another, there's another aspect to this. The, the Sabbath was working and then resting from your work. But isn't it amazing how many people think they understand Christianity and in their mind they're a Christian if when they die and God weighs their life in the balance that there are more good works than there are bad. But we know it's not of works. Ephesians 2, 8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled the work and then he rested. So Grudem says, the Sabbath commandment looked forward to the coming of Christ and was fulfilled by his life and ministry. It promised physical rest to laborers, but Jesus offered a deeper spiritual rest, a rest from our struggling to make ourselves right before God. You ever try to make yourself right with God on your own merits? It, you can't do it. It's impossible. Yet so many think that's the way to the cross. That's the way to forgiveness. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all, all who labor, Jesus said, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Down deep, inside. Why? Because he paid it all. He accomplished it for me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. According to Hebrews 4.9, to trust in Christ is to enter the truth Sabbath rest. Here's what it says. 
Therefore, while the promise, you guys still with me? You following me here? Okay. Therefore, here's the foundation. This is important stuff. We're laying the foundation for how we are to live. Okay? This is how we answer these questions. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For we who have believed enter that rest. When you believe in Christ and trust in him, you believe he's accomplished this for you. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And then Paul, Grudem says, explicitly says that the Sabbath commandment back in Exodus 20 was a shadow, but that the shadow is fulfilled in Christ. Colossians 2. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink. Well, why would that be an issue? Because some of them, you had Jewish believers who were still hung up on what the law had to say about food and drink. Okay? There were still law issues here these guys were working through. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Grudem says this, the New Testament explicitly says that Christians no longer must observe Sabbath days. Hmm. You got any verses on that? Yeah. Romans 14, verses 5 and 6. One person esteems one day as better than another. What day would that be? The the Sabbath, the Lord's Day. While another esteems all days alike. He's talking about matters of conscience in Romans 14, where believers have different views on things that are matters of conscience that are not directly addressed in Scripture. So you got one guy that thinks one day is above another day, but another guy thinks every day is the same. He says this, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Another issue was, can uh, the best deal on meat was not at Costco, it was at the pagan temples, because they would sacrifice these animals and you could get a deal on prime rib at these pagan temples. And so some Christians, I mean, you know, I'm a good steward. I've read all the financial stewardship books. I'm going down there and buying my meat. But other Christians, oh no, I can't do that. My conscience won't allow me. Okay, fine, fine. So one guy can buy meat down there, the other guy can't. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God, Romans 14. Once again, let each man be fully convinced in his own mind and don't judge the other. He goes on and says. He gets really explicit in the letter to the church at Galatia. Galatians 4, he rebukes them. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I may, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Then to the church at Colossae in 2.16 He says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. 
Christians were free to make up their own minds as to how they wanted to act on the Sabbath day or on Sunday because there was no moral requirement for God or from Christ about it. Grudem has a phrase in a footnote that's excellent. The phrase is this. He talks about when he changed his viewpoint. He said, and I adopted essentially the wise but not required view. The wise in regard to the Sabbath, a day of rest, it's wise, but it's not required. That's a brilliant statement because that's really the position of Scripture. Um, all right, so let's conclude this. A Sabbath is wise, but it's not required or binding, a day of rest. Why is it wise? There's a question for you. It's wise in our culture because we are so overloaded. We are so overworked. We're so overcommitted. We are so um, oh, I, I mean, we're just we're worn out. My friend Gary Rosberg was speaking a number of years ago with Dr. Dobson at a conference, and uh, he was telling me about it a couple days later. And he said that they had a question answer session and someone asked Dr. Dobson what he thought the greatest threat to the American family was, to the Christian family, I should say. Now, I can come up with some threats to the Christian family. So can you. Pornography, adultery, sexual immorality, there's all kinds of threats. Dr. Dobson, in answer to that question, what do you believe is the greatest threat to the Christian family? Without hesitation, he said, I believe the greatest threat is fatigue. Fatigue. That was a brilliant answer. Why is that brilliant? Because we're exhausted. We're absolutely exhausted. Uh, We have a pace There's a pace of American life, and we're very proud of it. They do these studies on what nations work the most hours. We'd always been number one. And then I remember, how long ago was it, 20 years ago? The Japanese beat us. Well, we can't have that. So what did we do? We just started putting more hours. There was a magazine that I don't read, but uh, I found an article this week. It's called Fast Company. It's a business magazine. And here's what's on their masthead. Fast Company is the world's leading progressive business media brand with a unique editorial focus on innovation and technology, leadership, world-changing ideas, and design. Written for, by, and about the most progressive business leaders Catch this, Fast Company inspires readers to think beyond traditional boundaries, lead conversations, and create the future of business. They want them to think beyond traditional boundaries. 
These guys are with it, they're out in front. Which makes it so interesting that I found this article in Fast Company from September 14th of this year. Let's bring back the Sabbath as a radical act against the always-on economy. It's written by a Jewish guy. It's all about the Old Testament Sabbath. It's all about rest. It's all about the fact we weren't designed to work seven days a week. We weren't designed to go 24-7. See, that's the pace of American life. We've even named it. We call it 24, what? It's 24-7. What does that mean? It means we go 24-7. Have you ever had someone call you real early in the morning? I mean, real early. I mean, you're in a coma. You, 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 you know, you hear this and, and you, this, this ringing and you knock the lamp over and you, and finally you get it. You go, hello? And the guy says, oh, did I wake you? <laughs> oh, no. What do you say? No, I'm always up at 310. <laughs> yeah, I go to bed about 3 and get up about 310. No, I'm good. What do you need? Sure. Well, how can I help you? We're embarrassed somebody caught us resting. We're embarrassed someone caught us recharging. We're embarrassed that someone caught us not working. And the way things are in this culture now, I, I will never forget the first time I came across this how many years ago was this? Uh, give me a second. It had to be, um, when did I, uh, give me a second. Late 70s. I was, uh, anyway, I'm down at Dallas Seminary. One of the profs recommended me to a church in South Texas. And I actually went down and met with them. And I remember they um, meeting the church secretary and she said, well, if you come, uh, I'll give you this. And I said, what is that? And she said, it's a pager. And I said, what is a pager? And she said, it means that I can reach you any hour of the day. And I thought, that's insane. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take one of those if you gave it to me. I don't want to be available every hour of the day. I don't want people to be able to access me. I just don't. Boy, have things changed, huh? I mean, the deal with work now, if you work for a, a company today, you're pretty much on call. I mean, you're on vacation? <laughs> you spend 7000 to go to Tahiti? You're working through your text. Oh, we got this, we got this. Oh, there's no break, there's no rest, there's no Sabbath. Okay, let's try to apply this. Let's, let's try to apply this truth because what's happening, not only we are exhausted, but our kids are exhausted. Our families are exhausted. There's got to be a better way to live. The stress levels are unbelievable. 
Income is up and so is stress. The promise of technology is if we get all of these new devices, I remember reading about if you could get your own personal computer, that what it would do is it would free up your time. This is gonna free up my time. This has chained me. This binds me. This controls me. This watches me. This listens to me. And has it freed up more time? Are you kidding? Okay. So let's start applying this stuff. Let me make, a, let me make three observations. You guys still there? Are you? Okay. First observation. The Christian life is a race. That metaphor is used in different places in the New Testament. Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, talking about the people in the previous chapter, Hebrews 11, who've gone on to be with the Lord. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Christian life is a race. And it's a very, very long race. First principle. Second principle. To run well, we must learn to manage our pace to avoid burning out. I have a friend, uh, Steve Hutton. We've been friends for a long time. He works with me in my ministry. He's based, he lives in Jackson, Mississippi. But Steve does a lot of stuff for me the media stuff, the internet stuff, sets up, you know, churches and speaking and all that stuff. Good guy. And last week we were talking and, uh, about this series, and he said, so are, are you going on to the next commandment next week? And I said, yeah, actually, I, I said, I'm thinking about doing uh, the fourth and fifth commandment next week in one night, doing keep the Sabbath and honor your father and mother. And there was silence. And he said, why would you do that? And I said, well, he said, Steve, why would you do that? Uh, he said, Steve, I'm stressed out. I burned out. How many guys in that audience do you think are stressed out up to their eyeballs, and uh, are on the verge of burning out. He said, man, I'd give that the, the whole time. And I said, yeah, I, there you go. And then I thought to myself, I went through burnout twice. Twice. Because I didn't have a balance. This balance between work and family, I didn't have a balance, and I had a family. I look back on those years, and I will tell you this, because I was, because I never stopped. Because from early in the, I'm a pastor, a young guy in a small church, but I wanted to grow it. 
and I wanted to be successful, and I wanted to do great things for God and all that stuff. And I mean, I never stopped. I remember, um, I remember when Mary asked me one time, she said, Steve, could we just go out on a date and watch a movie? And I thought, this woman is fletchly. She's not led of the spirit. I didn't think that. I mean, because she's not. But I thought, I don't have time to go to a movie. I got stuff to do. The world's falling apart. I mean, I, I mean, I was young. I was zealous. I was stupid. Here's my wife asking if we could go out on a date to spend one-on-one time together. I don't have time because I got to speak on marriage next week and loving your wife. <laughs> I mean, isn't it amazing how we get so blinded? Back then, I was, uh, because I was so exhausted and worn out, I'm not real high on the patience scale to begin with. But when I'm exhausted and out of of energy and I'm so driven, I have trouble going to sleep, I'm just worn out. I get real short-tempered. Um, that affected my daughter, Rachel. We talked about it. I get short-tempered. Why? Because I was exhausted. Because I was not following scriptural principles. And to be real candid and real honest. Where'd you go? Oh, I got this new podium, and there's so many shelves, I forgot they were there. So... A guy named David Murray is a pastor up north somewhere where they have snow. Uh, yeah, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, he's written a great book called Reset. Reset. Uh, he has a section here called Speed Up and Slow Down. And so often Christians are told, you know, we've got to reach the world for Christ. And, you know, you've got to just go after it. And, you know, just, it's, it, um, okay, you get it. You've heard all that. Uh, You don't want to waste your life, you know, the radical message. Just, okay. Uh, That's one message, but he says there is another one, and uh, this needs to be said to many faithful and zealous Christians who love the Lord, especially those age 35 plus who need to hear a different message. The message would be slow your pace or you'll never finish the race. Slow your pace or you'll never finish the race. You can't go 24-7. Your suburban can't go 24-7. In the glove box of your car is a manual of Sabbaths. So yesterday afternoon, I'm picking up stuff at the cleaners. I'm pulling out going back to the house, I happen to look up on my windshield and I see this sticker from Christian Brothers. And it tells me, I'm looking at it, and then I look at my odometer, I'm 2,000 miles over on an oil change. Now I watch that like a hawk. But there's been a lot going on. And somehow, I hadn't looked at that sticker. And I looked at that, and I called Christian Brothers, they were right across the street, and I said, hey Tim, I told him what was going on, He said, how fast can you get here? I said, fast. So I went over there, and they changed my oil. 
Because you see, that vehicle's got to have a Sabbath. It's got to rest. It just can't keep going. Neither can you. This is good. Slow your pace or you'll never finish the rest. As Brady Boyd warned in Addicted to Busy, ultimately every problem I see and every person I know, watch this, is a problem of moving too fast for too long in too many aspects of life. That's brilliant. I'm going to read it again. It's a problem, problem of moving too fast for too long in too many aspects of life. There's a lie in American culture. Uh, actually, there's more than one. You can have it all. You can do it all. No, you can't. But we act like we can. He goes on and says, I'm not proposing that we put our feet up and opt out of life and Christian service. No, I'm talking about, now watch this, I'm talking about carefully adjusting to life's changes as we age, as responsibilities mount, as families grow, as problems multiply, as energy levels diminish, and as health complications arise. That's what successful pace runners do. They are sensitive to significant changes in themselves and in race conditions, and they recalibrate their pace to avoid injury or exhaustion, ensuring a happy and successful finish. But you can't go 24-7. You can't do at 50 what you did at 20. I remember having a conversation with Gary Rosberg about we'd both turned 50. And he just had a conversation with Dennis Rainey about that. And Rainey said, I realized at 50, I lost a step. Sort of like playing basketball. You can still play, but you can tell you lost a step. It's like a basketball player, instead of being 21, it's 35. You get what I'm saying, don't you? And as we get older, we've got to adjust. You're still in the game. You can still be productive, but you've got to manage what you've got. And so much of aging well is learning to manage and steward your energy. We'll get on that later. I've discovered that such pacing skills are in short supply among Christian men with the result that too many, especially those most committed to serving Christ in their families, in the workplace, and in the local church, are crashing or fading fast before their race is over. Burnout happened to me twice. It's amazing how it happens to pastors. He says the data on pastors is especially worrying with high levels of stress, depression, and burnout leading to broken bodies, broken minds, broken hearts, broken marriages, and broken churches. Burnout's responsible for 20% of all pastoral resignations. That's hardly surprising since surveys revealed that pastors relegate physical exercise, nutrition, and sleep to a much lower priority than the average worker. But it doesn't matter what your calling is, what your vocation is, we're all dealing with this stuff. Then he says this, if I can find page 24. He talks about the grace-paced life. That God's okay with rest. And he is. 
God talks about work, but God also talks about rest. He says the rest of this chapter will challenge you to take stock of your life, to have a sober look not just at the externals, but also at the internals, your heart and your mind. This isn't mere self-centered navel-gazing. Catch this next sentence. Catch this. Self-care is the first step in caring for others, for loving your neighbor as yourself. That's Ten Commandments stuff. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 22, the the guy asked him, uh, what's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And the second is like the first, you shall love your neighbor as what? Self-care is the first step in caring for others. For loving your neighbor as yourself, says J.R. Briggs. It is not selfish to replenish energy and renew vitality in order to serve God and others better. As one of my friends reminded me, put on your own, ac- put on your own oxygen mask first. Then you can help others. Every time you get on a plane, you hear that. If you're traveling with a child, put on your oxygen mask first. And then put theirs on. Because if you're not breathing, you can't help anybody else. That's going to require some Sabbath thinking. Is it required? No. But is it wise? Yeah. Yeah. You guys still there? I'm amazed. And I'm glad. C.H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon was amazing. C.H. Spurgeon pastored in London at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. When he was 19 years old, 10,000 people would line up to hear him preach. Probably the greatest preacher in the history of the church since the New Testament. He had a large church. His sermons were printed and distributed in Europe and the United States. Um, he had a pastor's college. This, or th- this is called lectures to my students. It's lectures he gave to the, I mean, he was young, but guys were younger, about ministry. He has a chapter called The Minister's Self-Watch. You've got to watch yourself. Uh, he has another chapter, and th- this chapter I'm going to quote from is called The Minister's Fainting Fits. Uh, because of stress and because of responsibilities and the weight of the task and all the different things that pastors are called to do, you're called to do stuff. Um, He would answer personally 500 letters a week. He had the college, he had the church, he had an orphanage. He wrote commentaries that I still, a lot of pastors read. I still read his stuff. My, uh, my uh, brother-in-law, Brian, he reads his devotional every morning before he goes to the office, morning and evening, because it's prime rib baked potato, if you like that for breakfast. It's great stuff. The guy worked. Listen to what he says. This is about depression and how it can come up on you. He, he, he's talking about different ways depression will get us. He says this. 
In the midst of a long stretch of unbroken labor, the same affliction, depression, may be looked for. Now watch this. The bow that is always bent will one day break. Repose is as needful to the mind as sleep to the body. Our Sabbaths are our days of toil, and if we do not rest upon some other day, we shall break down. Even the earth must lie fallow and have her Sabbaths, and so must we. Hence the wisdom of our Lord when he said to his disciples, let us go into the desert and rest a while. So as we said, if you're real involved on Sunday, that's not a rest day. So you probably are going to need another day where you just kind of shut down. And you, it's like putting your cell phone in the cradle. It's got to recharge. You've got to recharge. I've got to recharge. Uh, oh, I can't, I can't be there on Sunday. I work on Sunday. My job requires it. Oh, you're in trouble. The Lord's against you. No, actually, he's not, because the Lord understands that. If you can't be there on Sunday, you're going to have to find another day of rest and of quiet. For me, it's Thursday. Just how it works out in my schedule. Jesus said to his disciples, let us go into the desert and rest a while. And then he says, Rest time is not waste time. It is economy together, fresh strength. Look at the mower in the summer's day and think back to the 1800s in England. Look at the mower in the summer's day with so much to cut down before the sun sets. He pauses in his labor. Is he a sluggard? No, he looks for a stone and begins to draw it up and down his scythe and rink-a-tink, rink-a-tink, rink-a-tink. Is that idle music? Is he wasting precious moments? how much he might have moaned while he was ringing out those notes on the scythe. But he is sharpening his tool, and he will do far more when once again he gives his strength to those long sweeps which lay the grass prostrate in rows before him. Even thus, a little pause prepares the mind for greater service in the good cause. Fishermen must mend their nets, and we must every now and then repair our mental waste and set our machinery in order for future service to tug the oar from day to day like a galley slave who knows no holidays suits not mortal men it is a wisdom to take occasional furloughs in the wrong in the long run we shall do more by sometimes doing less that's wisdom now, we all know it. It's just a matter of applying it. So I said I was going to give you three ways to apply this. First one, Christian life is a race. Secondly, to run well, we must manage our pace to avoid burnout. Thirdly, we must manage our work. We've got to manage our work. Now, let's say this. We could do a whole thing. In fact, at a men's conference, a lot of time, because we have young guys there who have been raised in this culture, a lot of them, and we've said this before, are putting off manhood and prolonging adolescence. And they don't know how to work, and sometimes you hire them, and they think they ought to be your boss, and they ought to have your salary, and you know what I'm saying. It's not all of them, but it's 
a good percentage, to them we would have to talk about the importance of work. What does the Bible say about work? Let me give you some verses. Once again, are you guys still with me? Yeah. And by the way, our culture is really strange on work. Our culture is... uh, If you watch sports on TV, there's basically two kinds of commercials. There's pickup commercials, there's beer commercials, and there's retirement commercials by some, you know, big financial services company. And the big thing is, I I remember in my 30s reading uh, Money Magazine or something. I don't know what it was. And I got three kids, and they're going off to college, and, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. We're just trying to make it. And I read this article on catch-up retirement. And I'm reading this article, and they had this calculator, and I put it in, and I realized that in order for me to catch up for retirement, according to their standards, I needed to save $17,000 a week. And I had three kids who hadn't gone to college yet. It was a little overwhelming. And it's also unrealistic because the art culture says, work until you're 60 and then don't do anything except play golf and fish for the rest of your life. That's nonsense. You know that studies have shown that guys that retire and then just stop being productive die within two years. We're designed to work. Now, as you get older, uh, as Bob Buford says, you, you don't retire, you refire. You might do something different, but you got to be productive. Or you may keep doing what you've been doing because you love it, but you may not put in as many hours. Or you get what I'm saying, but you just don't stop. We are made to work. Unless there's a physical disability or a handicap Let's look at a couple verses under this. Ephesians, we want to look at Ephesians 4. We want to look at verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Keep going to your right, and it's also in Colossians 3, but I'm going to skip it because of time. Then you get into, let's go to 1 Timothy, let's go to 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Worse than an unbeliever. A Christian who doesn't work if he's physically able, doesn't provide for his family. That's your job, it's my job. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you roll through Timothy, uh, uh, you want to go back, I'm sorry. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 10 at the end. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Watch this. To make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands. They didn't have any tech stuff back then just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. Then you go to 2 Thessalonians, 
and you go to 3, verses 6 through 12. This is interesting. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we don't have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Oh my gosh, how insensitive. That could crush his spirit. No, you don't, you don't work, you don't eat. That's just common sense. But not around here. Not in this country. You can go by 7-Eleven at 11, 11.30 in the morning and you see guys waking up, getting their coffee, buying their cigarettes and their M&Ms. And they're healthy and they could work and they're getting government checks. That's wrong. That's against scripture. So to wrap those principles up, Christian life is a race. To run well, we must manage our pace. To avoid burnout, we must manage our work. That's true. Here's how I would summarize that. In other words, we must watch our gauges spiritually, physically, emotionally, spiritually. So I looked up on my windshield and I saw that, oh my gosh, I'm 2,000 miles over. But on the dash, there are some gauges. I got a fuel gauge. You got to watch that fuel gauge. You've got, uh, you know, temperature. You know what I'm talking about. One of the reasons I burned out and went into that depression in my early 30s is that I didn't even know I had an emotional gauge. I knew I was tired physically, but I wasn't aware of, see there's physical energy and there's emotional energy and some things you pour out a massive amount of emotional energy. And somehow, somewhere, you have got to recover. And you've got to rest. You can't do strength training every day. They'll tell you there's got to be some rest. It's something called interval training. There's got to be some recovery. So we got to watch the gauges as men of our lives. We've got to watch the spiritual gauge the physical, and we're talking about work, the fourth commandment, and we're talking about rest. God's for both. Am I getting enough spiritual rest? Am I feeding my soul? How about physically, emotionally, relationally? How's my wife doing? How are my kids doing? So, how do we practically work this out? Let me... Uh, uh, let, let me give you three things as we leave here. How do I practically work out this balance between work and family and responsibility and rest? And how do I work it out? The first thing I would say is say yes to your callings. Uh, 
Say yes to your callings. Number two, say no to everything else. Spurgeon said, learn to say no, it will do you more good than learning to read Latin. <laughs> when I say, say yes, how do we avoid burnout? How do we avoid being stressed out? Our whole family's being stressed out. What did Dobson say? Greatest threat to the American family, Christian family? Fatigue. You can't have a good marriage if she's worn out and you're worn out. The kids are worn out. And I would say this to you. Dads with young kids, slay the idol of youth sports. I love sports. My dad loves sports. My brothers love sports. We played sports. But it's changed from when I was a kid. I don't see kids playing ball in the street anymore. Or in the front yards. Do you? No. I saw a thing in Flower Mound the other day. Flag football, ages three to three. Half those kids aren't potty trained yet. You know what you're going to get on that ball? Three? That's insane. Organized leagues with frustrated coaches who were robbed of their athletic prowess and now are going to take it out on the kids? I couldn't play organized sports till I was, I guess it was 10. Junior baseball, little league. And that was it. We didn't have pop warning. We didn't have anything in our town. We just had baseball. In Bakersfield, it was 110 degrees every day in the summer, and we had these heavy wool uniforms, and you'd get heat stroke. It was great. <laughs> oh, so you didn't play sport? Played sports every day in my life. Out front, backyard, park. Mom would call us for dinner. Oh, we don't want to come in. Oh, by the way, when we played, we had fun. Fun. Not pressure. Not trying to make the playoffs. Not stressed out. Not. We had fun. My kids were growing up. We had a rule. One sport. And about every three, four months, we'd talk about it. So, Rachel, what are you going to do? Uh, I'm, I'm no, cheerleading, Dad. That's it. I said, okay. John, what are you going to do? Basketball. Josh, what are you going to do? Dad, I want to do basketball and soccer. Can't do it. Which one you want? Yeah, but Johnny's dad said he, he done. He's playing three sports. Yeah, but Johnny's dad's an idiot. <laughs> now, did I say that? No. Was I thinking it? Yeah. So I'm not going to let Johnny's dad set the principle for how we live our lives in this family under Christ. We got other things to do. Yeah, we'll play sports. It's not our God. Jesus is our God. Say yes to your callings. This is how you decide what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. Because there's always something to do on top of what you're already doing. Is there not? And let me say this. Just because there's a need doesn't mean you're the one to fill it. God may have someone else to fill it. So what I try to ask this, I've learned this the hard way over the years, and I'm still learning it. In order to keep from being overloaded and burned out and going through that all over again, 
am I called to do this? Let me give you an example. Uh, I'm called to begin my day with scripture, with silence, and solitude. Matthew 4, 4. Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So I'm six years old, and we live on that house on Edwards Street. I was talking to my mom about that house the other day. I'm six years old, and in Bakersfield, in the winter, there's a lot of fog. Sometimes they close school for fog, because the buses can't see the stripes on the road. It's crazy. It, I was about six. I got up early. It was foggy. I went in, and I knew my dad would be in the kitchen, but he wasn't. And I walked around, and he was in the front room with his Bible open, kneeling at the sofa. Now, I don't know what was going on, but I just remember seeing my dad. And, that, and I saw it more than once, and that made an impression on me. He had a lot going on in his life. He had pressures. I'm sure he had financial weight because he was in real estate and you know, needed a deal and a commission and all that stuff. I know you got a job. I, I study the Bible for a living. You guys have got real work. But you got to carve out time that you spend time with the Lord. Be still and know that he is God. Be silent. Turn off the music. Turn off the noise. Read scripture. Talk to him. That's number one. I'm called to do that. Here's number two. I'm called to work. If any man doesn't provide for his own, he's worse than an unbeliever. I got to provide for my family. Uh, That takes time. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time for you. Provision takes time. I am called to do that. That's a calling. Now, you get in retirement age and some things change and all that, but you get the general gist of what I'm saying, don't you? Okay. Third, I'm called to love my wife. And that means that I interact with her and I talk with her. I live with her in an understanding way. That'd be First uh, Peter 3, 7, Ephesians 5, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. We just don't pass each other in the driveway and say hi once a week. I am called to love her. I'm called. And I want to do that. Uh, I'm called, my kids are adults, but I'm still their dad. And thankfully, they still call me and talk and want to get together. So already, look it, I spend time with the Lord, I provide, I write, I speak, um, I teach. I'm called to love my wife. I got three adult kids. That's... uh, Three, that's, uh, that's six. I want to spend time with them. I want to talk with them, their grandkids. That's six things um, that I'm called to do. I, I suggest that you just do one thing in your church to start out with. Churches can guilt you into stuff. And church leaders shouldn't do that because if you guilt somebody into it, they don't want to be in the first place and they're not going to do the ministry that you hope they're going to do because they resent being there. 
And don't let them guilt you. Only take it on if you're called to do it. Didn't that make sense? So then I'm at six, then, I, then seven, and then uh, to be a good steward of my health and all that, I, I got to factor in time, which I never used to do, but now to work out. That's eight things. That's eight things I'm called to. And every week, other things come up, and you know what my default word is? No. Thanks. I wish I could. Some people get it. Some people don't. It doesn't matter. But you see, if you're going to apply this fourth commandment of work and rest, why should you let their priorities become your priorities? Why don't you look and see at what God has called you to do? And then you stick with that. How do you learn balance? By losing it. This is something we deal with every day. Every day. Every day. But we keep working at it. And we ask the Lord to help us. Because if we can steward our energy and follow this calling, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He wants to use us. So let's live it his way, with his help. And he'll make us effective. Let's pray. So, Father, none of us have got this wired, but we do know this. When we get exhausted and fatigued and worn out and our health starts to fail and um, we have no emotional energy to be patient or to be kind or to listen, we're worthless as leaders. We're worthless as husbands and fathers and grandfathers. We don't want to be that way. We want to your representative and we want to be used so help us to live within the rails that you have given to us help us to uh, wise up and to walk in these paths of wisdom and we'll fall short but you're a great savior and if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What great news. What an encouragement. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.